0: All right, uh, today I'd like to welcome Dr. Neil Porter. He's an assistant professor of neurology here. Uh, he's been on faculty for pushing almost 20 years, right? So, uh, and he is our go-to man for uh, evaluation of the weak patient in, in our ICUs and we rely heavily on his expertise. And, uh, and thank you for coming here today to talk to us on it.
1: All right, so thanks. Thanks, Mike. All right, so, um, so again, I'm, I always like to give, like, informal talks, um, and so I know this is being recorded, but, and so it going to be, like, an audience participation thing, so it is very interesting that, uh, just in keeping with most lecture situations, that the distance, that the number of people in any row is directly proportional to the distance from the speaker, so we got it. Now, I don't have to come down, but because, again, it's a small enough gr- group. But what we are going to do, but what I am going to do is, is try to, you know, query people, get people to participate. Again, we only have an hour so maybe just kind of, but you folks should be like, again, it's almost by definition since you're critical care folks, should be relatively aggressive so I shouldn't have to kind of pry answers out of people but maybe just kind of quickly raise your hand and just kind of jump in so we can kind of get through this in an hour instead of like, instead of trying, like I said, um, uh, um, really prying things out of you. So, um, so really it's just a matter of you know, how do you think about the, the weak patient? And the big thing I always try to do is I always focus on, I mean, again, there's a lot of stuff to know, but I really like to always kind of focus on, I mean, there's evidence-based medicine and all these other things, but sort of just critical thinking, like how, what do you think and why? And that's what I want to kind of focus on. And so for any approach to any problem, it's going to be, you know, what, what's the problem? Well, the problem is a given, the patient's weak. What's your approach? How are you going to think about it? And then what are your endpoints? What are the diagnoses? So you need both, and this is what we always have to learn, right? You, ha- you need the approach, and then you need the targets, the differential. So you do need to have some knowledge of these different disorders, but you, you're not going to learn these different disorders if you haven't heard of them before. But hopefully we'll kind of at least talk about some thumbnails what do you think? When I say a certain condition like guillain what do you think about that? Or what, how do you view it? Okay? And, then, but the, this, and that, those will be the targets, but we'll really kind of talk about the superstructure, which I think is the more important thing, which is the, um, the approach to it, the thought process. And then you can refine your thought process as you go, because you're not going to remember most of the stuff that I'm talking about here today, right? I mean, if you don't know it already, you ain't going to remember it. But at least you're going to say, oh, yeah, now you heard about that condition, you go read up on it later. Right? Okay. So just the biggest thing is just to be, we'll just become a little bit more familiar with some um, neuromuscular conditions and and issues and then hopefully have a good time doing it. The way I always try to do this is usually I'll do a game called 20 Questions, but anybody that actually likes um, NPR, you know, there's a game called What Do You Know? So we'll actually just play what do you know, meaning what, what do you kind of think about these different things and realize I'm here for you. I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. So you can stop me at any given time and just sort of like ask me um, like any sort of question. I'm not saying I can answer it, but I can maybe – I can uh, – but, but feel free. So before we even kind of start, I mean maybe we can just kind of say because, again, one of, one of my goals in life is to try to reduce neurophobia, right? So, you know, I mean, I, I can't tell you. you. You folks know this. I mean, I don't have to tell you that, you know, in this hospital and in most hospitals, neurology, but specifically neuro, is a four-letter word, right? Because you heard it. Neuro said. And you all, when you hear that neuro, you know what that person, I know exactly what that person is thinking about neurology. Even if they don't say it, I know how they feel about neurology. Neuro said. Okay. And I hear all over the hospital. I know how, what people think about neurology. You don't got to tell me. I know it. You don't got to say it. Okay. So, so the issue is, so maybe I'll just ask, is there any burning consideration just so I know at the front end to be able to say that really just kind of that, that you really want to have answered before, before the end of the hour? So is there anything that really that you just don't get or you just or an issue or just some sort of pet peeve? You can't stand something? Is there anything specifically neurology related that I can just that I just know that I need to probably at least keep in the back of my mind just just for, just for you folks, anybody it really doesn't matter. Kathy, Mike, anybody. No, okay, that's fine. I mean, it doesn't have to. Be. Yes. Yeah. So the question is, how many? How do we get so many med students rotating on our service at one time? Well, the problem is we just gotta. You know, it's just like. We just gotta handle it, you know. So we're a small group and we gotta got put, put them someplace. So we do put a lot of med students at, at the VA, but we do put a lot of them here on the, on the university. It's tough. I mean, it's, like, it's really kind of tough. Yeah? Yes? Okay. So, background. So, just really sort of back. So, when we talk about weakness, again, just probably worth it, it's, I always like starting with definitions and then we'll do the so what test. So, definitions, what do we mean by weakness? Well, remember the MRC scale, five of the five strength is normal. So then we can go all the way down the list. So 4 out of 5 means they can give some resistance, but they're not normal. But that's going to be dependent upon. Again, probably a lot of you folks don't do peds. But if you did peds, well, how strong should a 4-year-old be, right? So you, what you think is normal is going to be somewhat subjective. And so I always talk about so, – right, so 4 out of 5 can give resistance, subjective, versus distinguishing from normal – but the rest of them are pretty much a little bit are a little bit more consistent. Three out of five means they can be anti-gravity but can't give you any resistance. That's a little bit kind of arbitrary uh, distinguishing feature. Two out of five is pretty clear. It can move with gravity removed but not anti-gravity. One out of five is a flicker. Zero out of five is nothing. So nothing versus one is an inchy weensy movement. All right, you can argue about that. Four out of five versus normal, I mean, versus five out of five, again, can be arguable. Interrater reliability issues are a big problem with, mo- with manual muscle testing. So I can't tell you how many times somebody said somebody's weak. I said, they're strong. Or somebody says, they're perfectly strong. I'm like, they're weak. All right, I'm the final arbiter when it comes to weakness, I think. I mean, I know. But I'm just, but there's, you just, there's just going to be – because what did I just say? For me to say that somebody's normal, a little old lady, an 80-year-old that weighs 100 pounds, a 4 year old that weighs 20 pounds, uh, and, a, and a, a 30-year-old that weighs 150 pounds, normal, normal, normal? All right, so you've got to understand it's going to be partly you that's going to determine – what's going on with normal versus abnormal, and not just what you think should be normal, but how much force should you, are you generating, because it's not controlled. You don't control for your force generation on your side when you're doing your manual muscle testing. You do, but you do it cerebrally. You're automatically filtering your force generation when you test somebody. All right? So I always tell people, there's times when I, I go in and say, that person's perfectly strong, and then I, then I forgot, oh my God, I'm evaluating for myasthenia gravis. I go back in the room and say, oh, that person's really weak. Wait a minute. I just said they were strong. I just said they were weak. What changed? What changed was what did I think the diagnosis was. When I think the diagnosis is stroke, ah, they're fine. When I think the diagnosis is myasthenia, wait a minute. They're a little bit weak in that shoulder. See the difference? So the difference was my expectations of what I thought they should be given the diagnosis and also my gain, my sensitivity for what I'm going to call normal, what I'm going to call abnormal. That's the nature of the beast, absolutely, incontrovertibly. So you have to understand that you can disagree with everybody else around when it comes to weakness. It's just the way it is. But when we're talking about ICU weakness, there should be no debate on whether there's weakness there or not, right? Because we're really kind of talking about respiratory failure. All right, so that's just really quick. All right, so let's just talk about just, um, just more, a little bit more background. So as neurologists, and, and that's where we distinguish from a lot of other, other specialties, but I don't do this as much, but I do it implicitly. Again, localization, so another four-letter word. Nobody else does localization other than neurologists. Speaks so much about localization other than neurologists. I don't like to speak a lot about it because that's not the end-all. I think the diagnosis is the end-all, but I do to organize my thinking this way. So generally, when you're talking about critical, when you're talking about significant weakness, to give respiratory failure, and that's what we're almost implicitly talking about, you probably are more likely talking about the peripheral nervous system. What, is, what are we talking about with the peripheral nervous system? Motor, so, again, it starts with the, on the motor side, motor neurons, nerves, um, nerve roots, um, plexi, so lumbar, uh, uh, brachial plexus, lumbar plexus, sacral plexus. The nerves go, the nerves go, the nerve, the things that go into the plexi are roots. The things that come out are nerves, so peripheral nerves, neuromuscular, the junction muscle. So that's the way we're going to, that's going to be our implicit organization of when we th- kind of think about the peripheral nervous system. When we're talking about disorders, so we can each kind of um, think of disorders. So let's just kind of go back. So uh, some people already saw it, but they can get people kind of, um, Warmed up a little bit. Again, disorders of the motor uh, motor neur- motor neurons, so neuronopathies, motor neuron disease, examples really fast. You can just call these things out. You know, I don't have to raise hands for this one. Motor neuron disease. ALS, anything else? MS. Uh, MS is gonna be more CNS sort of process. So ALS, anything else? We flash it up on the screen. ALS, spinal muscular atrophy, and what's the infectious one that we don't see anymore? Polio? Um, nerve root problems, so usually going to be radiculopathy from sort of disc disease. There's, there, but there are polyradiculopathies. Anybody see the flash of what I put up for polyradiculopathy? It's actually a polyradiculoneuropathy, neuropathy Guillain-Barré plexus plexus problems, just plexopathies. Um, usually like Lyme things like that. Nerve disorders, neuropathies, disorders of the neuromuscular junction. Myasthenia, botulism, Lambert-Eaton. Good. And then disorders of the muscle, so myopathies. Anybody know of any muscle conditions? Myopathies. huh? Muscular dystrophies, anything else? Myositis, so inflammatory myopathies. Polymyositis, dermatomyositis, inclusion body myositis. Good, anything else? Good enough. Um, So toxic myopathies from? Statins, good, excellent. All right, there you go, all right. So so my approach really is, is sort of like my approach to the weak patient in the ICU is the same thing as my approach to the weak patient at, at any given time. I may have to get my USB out of here before I step on it or something. All right, so mainly what I just kind of, the way I think of weakness, because there's all sorts of things that can cause weakness, CNS pathology, PNS pathology. We're going to leave the CNS out of it kind of, kind of. But the biggest thing is going to be the, what I use for history, history, very, very important, time course. Done, etiology. In my mind, time course is going to be the easiest thing that leads you to the etiology, right? But before you can kind of get to the etiology, what we still like to do, again, I have to say I do kind of use this localization stuff, but really kind of talking about diagnosis is pattern or weakness and associated features. Upper motor neuron versus lower motor neuron signs that everybody uses in this place and then plus or minus sensory problems. Really fast because I didn't put this on the slide. What do I mean by upper motor neuron signs? So spasticity. Increased reflexes, upgoing toes, good lower motor neuron signs, decreased tone, decreased reflexes, downgoing toes, plus anything else for a lower motor neuron sign. That would be, that would be important in the ICU. Fasic- muscle fasciculations, muscle atrophy, good. All right, so that's what I'm going to use. I'm going to use the time course. Pattern of weakness, associated features. Upper motor neuron versus lower motor neuron signs. Reflexes go up, reflexes go down. And that's what I'm going to mainly be doing to kind of make my diagnosis, right, of these different diagnoses that we're going to be talking about. But specifically in the ICU, you're really talking about really kind of two scenarios. And this is why I want to think this is one of the biggest points I want to get over in this, in this hour. There's mainly two scenarios that, that I really want to talk about. One, people in the, in, are in the ICU because they are weak. Two, people that are weak because they're in the ICU. And these are two fundamentally different issues that people just generally totally disregard. Because when you're seeing them, maybe you're coming on service, you're coming on at night, person is like ventilated, you can't get them off the ventilator, and you're like, what's going on with this person? And you're going to be saying, this is guillain is it my senior like where did they come? Well, they came in for like I don't know, MI or something like that, and now they can't get off the ventilator. So wait, that's a totally different situation than the person came in with respiratory failure and they were pulling the vent and you couldn't get off. See the difference? But how many times do people actually say? Because you're in the middle of this. By the time you see them, they have been on the vent for like two weeks. You don't, you can't even remember what brought them into the ICU. All you know is you can't get them off the vent. And you're like, geez, why can't we get this person off the vent? Well, but the question really is, what did they look like before they came into the ICU? That is the simplest question you can kind of answer, and that will probably give you the answer because if somebody is weak because they're in the ICU, it's almost definitely. Again, I, don't, I almost never use almost, I mean, I almost never use definite, right? <laughs> so almost definitely. So what is it? So what's going to be the scenario for people that are weak because they're in the ICU? Chorus. So the, diagnosis is, so the diagnosis is going to be, Kathy? Critical, yep, critical illness, myopathy, and neuropathy. So critical illness, polyneuropathy, CIP, critical illness, myopathy, CIM. All right. So if they're weak, if they've been in the, sitting in the ICU and now they're weak, I will say almost definitely, and they weren't weak to start with, almost definitely. Kathy's already kind of stolen a lot of my thunder as far as some of the background stuff we're going to talk about. But, and I've said this a hundred times because people always always me about EMGs. I'm like, oh, come on. I can tell you what this is. I'm going to tell you what it is before the EMG. And I'm not going to make any – I can't tell you anything different after the EMG. But that's why I get called. I get called to do the EMGs on a lot of these people. All right. So critical illness, neuropathy, polyneuropathy. All right. So what is – so what is it? So what is – so, I mean, somebody hasn't already spoken before. So I'm not going to call on people. So somebody – some bold person, raise your hand. So what do we mean by critical illness – Neuropathy, critical illness, I mean, critical illness, polyneuropathy, critical illness, myopathy. It's almost like, this is almost a no-brainer. So I'm not looking for, I'm not looking, we're not looking for rocket science. We're not looking for, yes? So probably it's more likely a disuse syndrome, of, but, and again, of, of like, so it's just like, so it's really like a severe, yes, a severe neuropathy, severe myopathy, as, as a function of being in, in a prolonged stay in the ICU. I mean, so it's almost like a circular sort of reasoning, but that's really what it is, at least at this point, because we don't really understand the etiology yet, right? So it's just purely descriptive, right? So, the, but the polyneuropathy is an axonal neuropathy that can kind of be bad, and we um, so, and then the myopathy is sort of like a... We don't understand the myopathy so well, but it's more like a myopathy where you will actually get um, um, just, just some destruction of the machinery, the little contractile apparatus, all right? But all they are is... So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You call me... You know, you, all you got to do is I look through the chart or you tell me when the person got weak and this is what I'm going to tell you. The, the diagnosis is... It's just very, very hard to say that it's anything else. So let's just talk a little bit more about what this is. So what are the clinical features? so All right, so thumbnail... What, a, what does a patient, because you've seen these people, what does this patient look like that has, and the reason I lump them together is because it's very hard to distinguish creole illness, neuropathy, myopathy. I, I, a lot of times I just kind of throw them together. You can segregate them, but more likely than not there's going to be a big chunk. So what is this person going to generally look like when you see this person? What are going to be some of the, some of the characteristics? So one, the onset is going to be a person sitting in the ICU. That's the history. The physical exam is going to be all right. What, what are you going to see? Other than the person can't get off the ventilator, what are going to be some of the features? Any anybody anybody with hand anybody any hand? Yes. So mus- I'm sorry. Your name is John. 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 So muscle wasting. Good. Anything else? Yes. Absolutely. So wasting. Anything else on physical exam? Muscle wasting, muscle weakness. Right. Anything else? Reflexes. What? What happens to the reflexes? Um, so, so they may be normal if it was a pure myopathy, but they're probably not going to be normal Out with a myopathy. They're probably going to be generally absent. But if there's concomitant CNS pathology, then they may be relatively normal. So you can't use that rule always. But more likely than not, they're going to, the reflex is going to be absent. So weakness wasting, absent reflexes, and, again, usually on, on the ventilator, right? I mean, I think those are going to be the biggest things. So the issue is going to be, is, do we live on anything? So quadriplegia, so flaccidity, so I, that's what we should have kind of mentioned. More like tone, right? So again, that's another lower motor neuron sign, like decreased tone. So decreased tone, decreased reflexes, um, what muscle wasting, and just generalized weakness. And a lot of times if it's just CIM and CIP, mental status should be what? Relatively normal. So that's when you really know what's going on, as opposed to they're, they're really just out of it, obtunded. Then you're like, who knows, right? But when they're wide awake, they're looking at you, they can follow commands, they can kind of maybe nod their head and like look around for you, they're wide awake, follow commands with their eyes or whatever, and they can't move a thing. All right, more likely, probably critical illness, myopathy, neuropathy. All right, good. All right, so just a couple extra tidbits. So this is the main thing. These, these are the details that probably we don't know in the thumbnail, uh, that probably is good to know. I mean, time frame, so how long does it take? And everybody's doing, doing well so far. Time frame, how long does it take to develop this, for this to, de, for this to come on, for critical illness to develop? Yeah. So, so I hear about a week. I'm sorry, your name is? Anju. So Anju says about a week. Sounds good. And that's what I'm generally going to say. I mean, typically, you're going to th- be thinking this is going to take probably some weeks, I mean, days, weeks, months. Uh, and that's what you typically see because these are people with these, remember, prolonged ICU stays. So let's look at what about the envelope, though? what's probably the shortest time period? Because that's going to be what we want to say before we attribute this weakness to critical illness, neuropathy, myopathy. At what point would we say, this is too short? So what would be the shortest time frame that we would be able to attribute this person's weakness to for critical illness, neuropathy, myopathy? What do people think? So Andrew already said a week, and I'll say it's less than that. So now we'll play Price is Right. So we're going to say less than seven days. How many – do I hear – so who else has a guess – uh, what typically we would say would be the shortest time it supposedly has been kind of reported. Would it depend
0: on their pre-admission?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. I'm sorry, the name is? Tony. Tony. So Tony's saying, what about, does it depend upon, like, how much reserve they had or how sick they were beforehand? I don't, Tony, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, it, it would make sense. But I don't know if that's really, if that's necessarily been, um, been teased out. For these outliers, because what we're saying is the extreme cases. What would be the most extreme? That would totally make sense, but I don't know whether. And the question is, how many sympt- systematic studies have really kind of been done? Because we'll get to that in a second about the incidents, right? Um, so, shortest time period, anybody have a guess? Less, so, I'm telling you it's less than seven. Tony, uh, so um, is it, I'm sorry, t- Tony's Tony saying three? We hear, any, do I hear less? So, instead of bitter, do I hear less than three? So, supposedly two. Supposedly two that's pretty. That's a pretty short period. And how would you even know at that point? Because the person's still probably on sedation at that time. How many people are even awake? And, like, so you actually see that they're awake. No, I'm just joking. Okay. So, no, but supposedly two days. You know, because there's going to be people that are awake and not sedated and not paralyzed. Okay. So two days. So it can happen relatively quickly. And there probably are the mitigating circumstances. And that's what we we'll need to really kind of figure out. Incidents. How likely? What's the likelihood that somebody in your ICU is going to leave with critical illness? Weakness, critical illness, myopathy, neuropathy, numbers. Some, somebody other than Tony. Somebody other than Angie. Somebody other than Kathleen. Yes, in the back. 30%. Thirty. I'm sorry. Your name is my Maria. Maria. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. My my auditory processing isn't very good, so I'm going to butcher some names out here. All right. So Maria. Um, so Maria says thirty. I'm going to say higher than that. So now we are going to do prices right. So higher than thirty. Any other numbers? Hmm. 50, so 50 were probably, so we got about like 50 to 70% of people. Prevalence, that'd be more incidence prevalence, I guess prevalence for by the time of discharge. The problem is do we really know? I mean, the, so the question is A, what's the case definition? B, so what are you using for your case definition? But people, and then some estimates say that, you know you know what that means. So about 50 to 70 is what some people kind of say, but it's probably going to depend upon which ICU you're in and what do you do in your, what's your common practices in your ICU, right? Because there are certain modifiable risk factors. How do you make the diagnosis? So this is very common, and it can happen relatively quickly. How do you make the diagnosis? Anybody? Other than somebody we haven't heard about, heard from, Anybody? Gentleman in the red shirt I I mean I'll just what do you think how do we make the diagnosis huh yes so we do it clinically right so we look at it so we get the history person didn't come in weak now they're weak we look at them they got weakness they got wasting they're like flaccid no reflexes sounds good to me so that really would be so clinically would really be the main main, main thing we could if we needed some confirmation though if we needed some confirmation I'm not saying you need confirmation if you needed some confirmation what could you do so that would be the therapy probably, but confirmation for the diagnosis. But you're saying for assessment, good? I mean you could get them to assess them, but you should be able to kind of look and see if this person's like really, really weak. Yep. Anything we can do for confirmation? EMG, EMG yes. But do you need EMG? No. Good. Whew. Okay. Treatment. Yeah. Just supportive measures. There's nothing you can really gonna do that's gonna make those nerves and those muscles better. Prognosis. This is important. It depends on what nerve muscle. Exactly. So Melissa is saying, so, so definitely critical illness myopathy has a better prognosis than critical illness neuropathy. Just like the liver, the muscles really have a good capacity for regeneration. The nerves can regenerate too, right? So the, peripheral, so the brain, so for MS, things like that, CNS regeneration, not so good. Don't ask me why. Peripheral nervous system regeneration, relatively good. Here's the problem. I said that this was an axonal problem. And here, especially here at shock trauma, people come in with transective nerves all the time. Your nerves can regrow. How fast do they regrow? Anybody know that one? Yeah, I'm here rumbling. Is your hand? Oh, Maria? Or somebody say something? A millimeter a day? Yes! Excellent! Sweet! All right. So, so again, whether you're... I guess if you're like the British system versus the metric system, so a millimeter a day, or an inch a month. Okay? Is that really right? That doesn't sound right. Inch inch a month, okay? Inch a month. So it takes a, it takes a long time. So a foot a year. It's going to be a long time. Okay? Okay, so um, so the prognosis so the prognosis is better for muscle because you don't have to have this regeneration for the nerves. It's going to take time, so it still can happen. It's just going to take time depending on how bad the nerve degeneration is. But what people kind of say is, is about 30% of the people. So just just things that you can try to remember if you want to kind of give people a prognosis. You can say this generally the pro, generally people get better. That's why I usually say generally people get better. And what some reports kind of say is 30% recover fully in th- by three months. So if you just wanted some sort of of label or some sort sort of, of, of um, um, tag to give people, that wouldn't be a bad th- tag to give. What, one thing I kind of left out as far as how to make the diagnosis. So electrodiagnostically, we would do nerve conduction studies, and we're looking for axonal loss. And If you have questions on that, I can answer that. The one thing that's very specific for critical illness myopathy that distinguishes it from other myopathies is that, um, that you have, if you try to directly stimulate the muscle with electrical, electrical probes, that the, that the muscle is electrically silent, that you can't directly um, stimulate the muscle, whereas that most condition, other conditions that won't be the case. It's just an interesting thing that's not very, a very much practical import because it's not easy to do, but from a research standpoint, it's very interesting, okay? Everybody's doing great. Oops. <laughs> Risk factors. So because this is important. I mean, Kathy already kind of went through, I think she actually touched on most of them. So what are the things that would what put people at risk for critical illness, myopathy, and neuropathy? And I just had showed on the, on the, on the board. Anybody that hasn't spoken up yet and was paying attention to Dr. Romanet. So risk factors? Yes, John. Oh, behind John. I'm sorry. So steroid use. I'm sorry, your name is? Omar? Omar says, so steroid use, definitely. Yes, anything else? So steroids? Paralytics good. Anything else? Prolonged ICU stay. Cedation. Hmm. Cedation. Sedation, right? Sedation, paralytics. So I, actually, I'll put in paralytics. But I think I bet you sedation is too. But definitely paralytics and then sepsis. So sepsis, steroids, um, paralytics, and in pro, the prolonged ICU stay are the things that kind of. So the question is, which of these are modifiable? Well, definitely the paralytics, right? I mean, and then, but also the steroid use, right? But steroids is probably going to be a little bit, that's going to be tougher to say we're not going to give somebody steroids when they need steroids. But paralytics, I mean, neuromuscular blockers, so that's the whole point. of. Uh, that's why the incidence is definitely going to be variable because if your standard practice is, hey, you know, we're just going to, we're just, this guy needs to be in the bed, we can't afford to, like, have him, like, be in, like uh, having problems on the vent, all right, paralyzed. Versus, like, no, we're not going to do that, no paralysis, right? So, yeah, Mike.
0: Is there,
1: is there a certain dose or time frame that, uh, the duration of use like, Right. So, Mike, so, um, so, so the question was, is there a specific time frame of use of these neuromuscular blockers versus just the total, like is it a dose-dependent thing or is it a time-dependent thing? And I really don't know. Clearly, the more the worse. The question is, can you, is there a specific protocol that would relatively spare? Because that's what you want, right? Because you then let people up for, like, whatever, an hour a day or an hour every, every shift or something like that. And if you knew that was protective, then you could get away with doing sedation and yet still um, have them not, not uh, um, uh, incur this, this, this major side effect. And that I actually don't know. And that, so these are the questions that we have to sort of answer. How much is safe? Versus is anything safe? If it's a linear or somewhat nonlinear relationship, then you're just going to say minimize it that, that you can do safely versus can you come up with a protocol, all right? But I got to tell you, I mean, for my myasthenics, I mean, I don't, I don't see – I mean, I still have, have myasthenics in I ICU. You're right. And my myasthenics, they're weak, but they usually don't get critical illness neuropathy. Right? You de- you're definitely not going to use neuromuscular blockers with a myasthenic, right? I mean, after you, initial intubation. So in, it is interesting. But again, these are people that are 4 plus plus sick, though, sicker than my myasthenics a lot of times. So I'm not going to say that it's just this neuromuscular blockade thing. But it is interesting. If we teased apart some of this stuff, you could probably actually get a little bit better evidence to really show how bad some of these things are. But what I'm just, the whole point of this is just it probably isn't a good idea to have a standard practice of having these people paralyzed you know, for some, any prolonged period of time, and we have to figure out what prolonged means. Okay? Yes, right, exactly. I'm sorry, your name is? Mm-hmm. Melissa. So, yeah, exactly. So, that's just, so, almost as a side effect, of, so, if we're, if the new goal is to mobilize earlier, well, you can't mobilize and paralyze patients. So go, going hand in hand, getting people kind of up and about, up and, and vertical probably earlier, definitely is going to then help. So that's going to be this huge cultural change is really kind of getting people going as opposed to just kind of letting them ride and letting them sit there. But you're absolutely right. So the question is how much of it's iatrogenic immobility versus almost like a passive immobility where we're just letting them lay there as opposed to where we're making them lay there because they're paralyzed, right? Absolutely. So it will be interesting to see, again, as, we, as, this, as this cultural shift happens, are we going to see a reduction in incidence of this. Um, so pathophysiology, I'll just kind of come through this. So this stuff is really kind of tough. This is the most interesting part of it, but also it's the most sort of tenuous part of it. So at least for the illness polyneuropathy, obviously it's really we – have, we have a hard time with the pathophys of most neuropathies, all right, especially axonal loss. Um, demolination is easy. It's just the demolination, right? But for axonal loss, it's really hard to say what's killing those nerves. You can kill a nerve a lot of ways. Like there's thousands of ways to kill ways to kill nerves. Trust me. All right, and this is just kind of one of those ways, and we just don't understand it very well. So it has some sort of metabolic um, component. But clearly, sepsis is one of the biggest things for critical illness polyneuropathy. But steroids are one of the biggest issues with critical illness myopathy. But it's, it's believed that the myopathy is more of an acquired sodium channelopathy. And people, that's why people think about this being this what's called electrically silent uh, muscle, because the sodium channels ain't working. So you can't even depolarize the muscle membrane. Very, very interesting, Okay. But, um, but clearly, it's, it's more complicated than that. But this is one of the things, and again, this is really, maybe we should do more as far as research goes. People are getting more and more interested in this. The problem is, is that it's hard, again, case definitions, and how much testing do you have to do to kind of come up with your case definition, it's, and it's murky. The problem is the patient population is very murky. Um, what about people? All right, so, so I meant to put in a kind of break at that point. So just on that stuff, because this is really the major part of the talk, is really this critical illness stuff you're going to see this and you're going to have an impact on this just by what you do. So it's going to be a matter of by changing what you do, you can actually decrease the likelihood of them developing this. But any other questions just on critical? I know I kind of covered it in a very cursory fashion. I'm surely, I'm not an expert on this sort of thing, but I surely have seen a number of cases of these people. I have seen people far out. I had the one lady that came to me that was really, really bad that did go to rehab probably like on a ventilator, I believe. And she came to see me like nine months later, walking into clinic. She ha- still had bilateral foot drop, the neuropathy part of it. Remember, the nerves grow back. At, how fast do the nerves grow back? Inch a month. Inch a month. A millimeter a day. So, um, so, uh, so it still took. It, so she was, still had a while to go for her foot drop. But other than that, you looked at this person, and you're just like, there's no way you would have thought this person was like went out, went out of the hospital in the ventilator. So very, very interesting that people do get better, right? But, again, there's going to be some residual. Any other questions just on the on – the, yes, is Kathleen? There, are there any that we should be you guys involved with? That in, in so, again, so the question is, you know, so when to get me involved? And what I would just kind of say is, is that, see, the problem is, so we didn't really – since the treatment is supportive anyway, the real question is, is there any doubt that – is there any consideration this is something else? So if you think it's any, it could be anything else, but really what else could it be if this person came in okay and now they're kind of weak? If there's any thought like that, then that's what I would say. But if you just, if you just see these people, because you see them, and if you look hard enough, you're going to see this. Remember, 50 to 70% of your population, everybody. I mean, when you look hard enough, 100%. So then it's like, well, you're coming for 100%. Well, no, it's just going to be a matter of what protocols do you have to early mobilization and things like that. So this is more like a systems-based thing to prevent it. Because once it happens, it's like, well, it's too late then. Then you just have to say, is there anything that we're continually doing that's making things worse? get rid of that. Like again, judicious use for steroids, really judicious use of the paralytics and the sedatives, early mobilization. I mean, so it's really just more of a knowledge that this could happen. What can we do to actually prevent this? And so part of it is just the education of knowing that's happening, and then not being complacent as to saying, oh, well, it just happens all the time. No, I mean, we're doing this, right? So what can, which should, so maybe we should be like jumping up and down to say, that, I mean, we don't want to say this is a, a never event, right, okay, but, you know, just try to minimize this from happening I think is really a good thing. It probably would be worth, you know, somebody, if somebody was really interested from a, um, from a project standpoint and from a cost-effectiveness standpoint for the hospital, I mean, definitely, but now it's now's the, now's the, now's the opposite thing. So you're going to use more physical restraints? Oh, we shouldn't be using physical restraints. Well, maybe we should be using more physical restraints if that means we're doing, giving less chemical restraints and actually improving prognosis. Again, we're not going to know that until we actually do this. Study, so again, the question here is just going to be: What's it? What? And when you look at the greater scheme of things, what's the be, What's really going to be best for the patient? But from EMG standpoint, I would just say you almost never need an <laughs> you almost never need an EMG uh, if you, if you really are comf- comfortable that this is really a critical illness, because you have to understand electrodiagnostics almost never give you the etiology. So if you say we really want to know why this person is weak, I'm going to come in, and if they have a neuropathy, I'm going to say they have a neuropathy. I'm going to say this is most likely critical illness because they were okay before they came in. They've been in the ICU for two weeks, and now they have a horrible axonal neuropathy. But I can't make that claim from my EMG. I just make that claim from it's consistent with it, and then the situation is clearly um, consistent with it. So the most likely diagnosis is that. From a prognostic standpoint, it may be, but I guess it doesn't matter. Exactly. So the question is, what about from a prognostic standpoint? He's like, don't you want to get a good prognosis? Don't you want to know the prognosis? You want to know how likely this is? Pro- look, the EMG is not a crystal ball. <laughs> all right? so, so what I'm going to tell you is, yeah, maybe things don't look quite as bad as they might, you might have thought. Let's see how they do. Or, yeah, things look really, really bad. Let's see how they do. In the end, what, were we, what am I going to say? Let's see how they do. I mean, it's really just going to be a matter of how do they do. And, there's, and all this extra information really isn't going to it, tell you that much. If it looks horrible, you know it's like, mm, not so good. But does that mean that this, that they can't recover? No. Remember what I told you? The nerves grow back, muscles grow back. If it doesn't look so horrible, that probably will be a little bit better. But that doesn't say they're going to do well. It just means they look less horrible today. So that's why I'm saying that that really the EMG isn't, isn't, a, isn't a crystal ball. It just kind of tells you where they are right now. So I'm not saying it's totally worthless. You know, I, I'm just kind of saying this. you can probably – it's not going to give you – better information than what you can probably, with your knowledge of the, the general prognosis, I'm probably not going to be able to better define that because who knows what's going to really happen in the future. Today. Melissa? Yeah, so, so Melissa's bringing up the fact that there's long term consequences. But some of the long term consequences, you've got to remember, this off topic is really going to be some of the CNS stuff that, we that nobody talks about, right? You know, that people talk about is that, you know, post cab not just post cabbage, but post ICU. Cognitively, people don't do as well. But absolutely, I'm not saying, again, 30% return to normal, that still means there's 70% that, A, show some recovery, and then some percentage show no recovery, or n- not significant or incomplete recovery. Yes. So that there are going to be a significant number of people. Who have permanent deficits based upon this. Done. Just like with stroke. Just like any other sort of neurological. It's a spectrum. Some people completely recover. Some people don't recover at all. Some people recover some. Okay. Excellent. No, absolutely. Okay. So now, what about when people come into the ICU? So there's still two separate situations. And it's still all based upon time frame. Acute slash subacute and then chronic. So obviously the acute slash subacute is the one that's going to be a little bit more germane or going to be um, one that, that we're going to pay a little bit more attention to, so we'll talk about that first. So again, motor neurons, acute motor neuron neur- motor neuron disease. I, can't, I couldn't think of anything, to be honest. But I'm sure there's something out there. For the roots, Guillain-Barre syndrome. For the plexi, Parsonage-Turner. Has anybody ever heard of Parsonage-Turner before? We'll talk about that in a second. For the nerves, porphyria, heavy metals neuromuscular junction, myasthenia, botulism, muscle, a bunch of different things, inflammatory myopathies, rhabdo, I won't speak about that in statins. All right, so just some thumbnails for each of these things. What, what do people know about Guillain-Barre syndrome? Any thoughts on Guillain-Barre? Just in, 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 a th- in a one minute, somebody other than Melissa, one minute, what do you think of Guillain- When you think of Guillain-Barre, what do you think of? Just two, one-liner, two-liner, woman in the pink, pink, pink sweater. Ascending paralysis. Ascending paralysis. anything else? Illness, like, yep, yep, antecedent illness, good, anything else? Yes, usually monophasic, good, anything else? Good enough, what's your name, sorry? Mary, Mary. all right, so I'm glad Mary actually said <laughs> ascending paralysis, because that's I do have like a pet peeve, and it really is the ascending paralysis. So um, so again, guillain so instead of thinking ascending paralysis, what I try to te- tell people is, Take the A, take the sending out, and just make it a reflexic paralysis, and I think um, I think you'd be okay. So the way I think of Guillain-Barré is yes, antecedent illness, so usually viral prodrome. Then first symptom usually is actually back pain, then tingling in the hands and the feet, and then progressive walking problems. The problem is the progressive walking problems is not due to the ascending paralysis. Does anybody know what it's due to? Weakness of the hips. So are the hips distal or are they proximal? Proximal. So actually, Guillain-Barre is actually a proximal greater than distal process. And you say, how can this be? Because remember, I put it. That's why I put it under radiculopathy. It's a polyradiculoneuropathy. But the blood nerve barrier is very thin at the at the roots. So it's really a poly. It's a, predominantly for some people a polyradiculopathy, a non-length dependent process. So that actually, people will have more problems with their getting out of chairs and stairs, proximal weakness. But everybody knows, everybody knows that Guillain-Barre is an ascending paralysis. And boy, I just can't get that. I can't get that out of people's heads. But I'm, I'm, is it Mary? I'm sorry. Mary, I'm glad you said that because it's just it's the biggest teaching point. Because people even say, there's peace. Hey, we had this kid. We thought it was Guillain-Barre, but it wasn't ascending paralysis. And I'm like, ah, yeah, it's Guillain-Barre. Okay, so it, so really, just the time course is what I just kind of said. How do we make the diagnosis? Nerve conduction studies looking for demyelination, which is slowing, but then also L, we do the LP looking for cytoalbuminemic disassociation. And how do we treat it? How do we treat Guillain-Barré? Plasma exchange versus IVIG. Why does anybody know why prednisone is contra, is considered to be contraindicated? Mike. <laughs> Good guess. I forgot to mention that, yeah, guessing is fine, and saying I don't know is fine. It turns out for demyelinating disorders, a little bit of steroids is actually a bad thing. No steroids, eh, maybe not good. Super high dose steroids, solumedrol, maybe pretty good. Medium dose like steroids like 60 of prednisone, bad. Optic neuritis, bad. Guillain-Barre, bad. Solumedrol, good. Prednisone, bad. It actually worsens your prognosis. Very interesting for a lot of these demyelinating conditions. So don't give them, like, 60 of prednisone, all right? Cymetrol, I guess. All right. Plasma exchange versus IVIG. Yes, monophasic illness. Generally, the prognosis should be good, okay? And, again, we do the nerve conduction studies in this case just because to help um, support the diagnosis. Parson's turner very rare. Anybody ever heard of this condition? So two people. We'll leave Melissa alone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Your name is? Mario? Mario. Okay. Mario. Ah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. I'm much better with visual. Mario, what do you think? Yeah, what's, what about Parsonage-Turner? Uh, a yes. Acute brachial neuritis. Good. So do you know the, usually the symptoms of acute brachial neuritis? Uh, Weakness, numbness, pain. Good. So, but wait a minute. What about respiratory failure? Okay. So uh, um, in rare cases, Parsonage-Turner, it's a generally a brachial plexopathy. In rare cases, it can affect the phrenic nerve. And even more rare cases, bilateral phrenic nerves. Even more rare cases, bilateral phrenic nerves and nothing else for the rest of the arm. So somebody presents with acute respiratory failure, and I'm scratching my head because I have no idea, and it maybe could due to this acute brachial neuritis. It's just like another post-infectious sort of thing. So I'm just saying it's, it's out there because at least the prognosis in this case should be very good if, you, if we can make the diagnosis. So just not, not all hope is lost if somebody comes up with acute... Um, weakness from on a neurologic basis because maybe it's going to be something like this, a self-limited sort of thing. Porphyria, my favorite. Anybody have any thoughts on porphyria? What is it? What is porphyria? Thumbnail on porphyria. When you think of th- porphyria, what do we think of? For the acute porphyrias that are neurologic, because remember there's the porphyria cutanea tarda, which is cutaneous. I don't know anything about that because I'm a neuro- neurologist. So what about the neuropathic porphyrias? Anything is like a sequence of things, like one, two, three. Anybody know of any sort of things for that? Yeah, no? Okay. So really what you – so you normally think of belly pain, psychosis, and then limb weakness. That's sort of like the it. That's sort of the sequence of events for these acute porphyrias. Again, it's usually on nerve conduction Say it's axonal loss. And the way you can try to do a screen for a diagnosis would be um, urinary porphobilinogens and then delta amino acid. But this is kind of rare. But the reason this is good. Why is it so important to diagnose porphyria? Because generally it's an iatrogenic condition. We're really instigating the problem by giving them medications. So once you make the diagnosis, you got to give them only, you have to pull up that safe list of medications and don't give them other stuff because you know what's going to happen? they are going to end up in the ICU. Myasthenia gravis. All right, you got, it. Yeah, everybody's got to know something about myasthenia gravis here. Anybody want, anybody want to take a stab at myasthenia? And it's getting, unfortunately, we're getting a little bit late. So, um, yeah, so myasthenia, again, remember proximal weakness, dysarthria, dysphagia, diplopia, ptosis, right? Um, usually proximal muscle weakness. How do we make the diagnosis? Antibiotic testing, repetitive nerve stimulation. Let me just show you real quick. This is a repetitive nerve, this is a decrement on slow repetitive nerve stimulation, all right? And then, how do we treat myasthenia again? Come on. All right. Yep. Acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Always first line for at least mild people, but if people are in crisis. What are we going to do? IVIG, plasma exchange. Because I like plasma exchange better than IVIG. And then steroids and then steroid sparing agents. Botulism. Again, my favorite. What is botulism? I'm sorry. So, person over in the far corner with the white coat on. Have you ever seen a case of botulism? Oh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. No, not, not, not um, um, Omar in the back, um, in front. No? Anybody here ever seen a case of botulism? Yes? Really? Really? Do, but, so, it, so the problem is infantile botulism does look a little bit different. But yeah, what, do you remember the features of that botulism? Swallowing problems, weakness, yes, exactly. Just pharyngeal, bulbar weakness, eye movement abnormalities, limb weakness. Looks just like myasthenia gravis. One of the cases, we had a case here at shock trauma. Guy had, um, fell out of a tree, had like an um, a internal fixation, got some sort of seeds, I can't remember what, gentamycin seeds put in, and then developed um, what looked like myasthenia gravis. And we thought, oh, it was the gentamycin. It was botulism, right? So the question is, how do you distinguish botulism from myasthenia gravis? Botulism has areflexia. That's one of the easiest things. And then on repetitive nerve stimulation, botulism has facilitation. So let me show you. On slow rep stim, rep stim looks exactly the same. You see a decrement. This does not allow you to distinguish. But on a fast rep stim, you get what's called facilitation. Very, very important and probably good for the boards if you have to take the boards. This, there's very few things that are going to do this that are going to give you facilitation with fast repetitive nerve stimulation. And they're generally going to be the presynaptic um, neuromuscular junction disorders, of which botulism is one. Does any of anybody remember the other one? Lambert Eaton. Excellent. Good. Inflamm. Yes. Yes. So facilitation. So what happens is we, when you shock, you shock the nerve, you get a muscle response. But remember with Lambert-Eaton you get antibodies against the voltage-gated calcium channel, so you don't get calcium influx, you don't get, neuro, um, you don't get neurotransmitter release, no response. You can overcome that, that inhibition with um, uh, like either tetanizing current or with exercise. So you push the system, calcium eventually gets in and then boom, nice juicy response. With botulism, the toxin actually interferes with the, all the machinery to get the release of the acetylcholine. Same sort of thing. Push the system hard enough, get some, of the, get some more calcium in there, partially overcome the defect, boom, you'll get, um, you can get a, um, so what you're looking for is summation of these responses, more calcium gets in there before it gets pumped out, and generally, eventually, you will get a nice, juicy response. All right, excellent, I mean, a very good question as far as, but the physiology of how the machinery gets messed up by botulism, I can't tell you, right? So I can't remember what the, some, somewhere in the machinery gets messed up, but very, very characteristic. Inflammatory myopathies, polymyositis, dermatomyositis, clinical situation, again, proximal weakness, maybe tender muscles. What does dermato look like? What's, how are you going to tell that somebody's got dermato? Skin changes, remember, Gott- was it Gautrin's nodules or something like that? So darkening of the skin, sort of like extensor surfaces, things like that. The thing that's going to allow you to say, this is, generally it's just going to be proximal weakness, but the thing that's going to tell you somebody has a, an inflammatory myopathy is a super high CK, 40,000, 50,000, not five hundred. Don't call me with a CK500 talking polymyositis. I want to hear 50,000, okay? The way you make the diagnosis is really by muscle biopsy, right? And you're going to treat it with steroid-bearing agents. Statin-induced myopathy, what do they look like? They look just like an inflammatory myopathy, maybe a little bit more acute. Proximal weakness, super high CK. How do we tell the difference between a toxic myopathy, a statin-induced myopathy, and inflammatory myopathy, like polymyositis? So, maybe by history, yes, that they're on the statin, there would be circumstantial evidence, but people with still statins can still get polymyositis. So, how would we distinguish? They are really, they will look almost exactly the same. How are we going to be able to tell the difference between a statin induced myopathy and an inflammatory myopathy? So, ESR, but ESR is very nonspecific. Well, I mean, you can't you – can't, you really – you either just take away the agent and then wait for them to get better, or you do a muscle biopsy. So the only difference is muscle biopsy will show inflammation versus muscle biopsy will show um, um, necrosis with a statin-induced myopathy. So just a couple key things, and maybe we'll just maybe stop here because we don't have to go through the chronic stuff unless, unless we want to take five more minutes. So sort of things that will help you. Generalize, so generalized areflexia. When you hear that, think a reflexive paralysis, Guillain-Barre. Or botulism, and definitely call me. I tell people there's only one indication for a stat EMG in my mind, and that is botulism. And I have come in on a Sunday night to do a kid with botulism because, because we didn't talk about that. Because how do you treat botulism? Yeah, give them the anti-time. I mean, You've got to fly this stuff in from, like, where, like, California or something. you got to get the CDC involved. So this is big-time stuff. So this isn't like, ah, we're thinking it's maybe botulism. Maybe we'll just call the it CDC. It's no, like, they're going to ask you, well, did you do the EMG? And they're going, like, well, we haven't done it yet. So, I, I, come in, I really will come. If I'm in the country, I'll come in. All right, so, um, all right, so, Gambare botulism, no reflexes. Um, uh, decent reflexes take myopathy and myasthenia, so, another type of neuromuscular junction. Eye movement abnormalities, Gambare, myasthenia, botulism, high CK, toxic myopathy, or inflammatory myopathy. You guys want to take two more minutes or you're done? All right, let's just go. Break. All right, chronic stuff, ALS, spinal muscular atrophy, CIDP. All right, let's keep going. So, ALS, everybody knows about ALS, right? But what would be the thing that you can look for to make you think that this person who's in your ICU can't breathe very well, been gone for a long time, This has been gone for some. if you ask long enough, now it's been gone for a year. What are you going to look and see that's going to make you say, oh, my gosh, I think this person's got ALS? Fasciculations, exactly. It's really going to be the fasciculations, but everything else, upper motor neuron, lower motor neuron signs, weakness and wasting. problem is survival is only two years after the diagnosis, if, but they're in the ICU when they make the diagnosis, their survival is not going to be two years. I mean, I'm telling you that, unless you put them on the ventilator. Spinal muscular atrophy, anybody ever heard of that? So spinal muscular atrophy is just a group of disorders. They're just hereditary um, nerve de- motor neuron diseases. Werner Kaufman, anybody ever hear about that? Werner Kaufman in Little Babies, Kugelberg, Wielander, you can't treat it. It's just a matter of just, see, my comes in with weakness and wasting. You have to say, if, if, if you do an EMG and it looks like it's neuropathic, then they probably have spinal muscular atrophy. CIDP. So this isn't a bad one. Anybody ever heard of CIDP? So this is the chronic form of Guillain-Barré. So demyelinating neuropathy, but instead of it being acute and monophasic, don't worry about it, this is more chronic. The interesting thing, so demyelination of nerve conduction studies. You can still treat it with IVIG and plasma exchange. But look at this. One of the hallmark treatments is prednisone. Now I said prednisone was bad for Guillain-Barré, but guess what? It's good for CIDP. So when somebody's diagnosis changes from Guillain-Barré to CIDP, What's the first thing I do? Put them on prednisone if they're, if they're okay with it. Muscular dystrophy, as people already talked about, what is, does everybody knows what a muscular dystrophy is? Anybody not know what a muscular dystrophy is? Anybody want to say what a muscular dystrophy is? Remember, it's not just a one monolithic condition. This is a bunch of conditions. This is a set of conditions. So really just hereditary degenerative muscle conditions. So generally, the CK will be sky high, just like polymyositis and toxic, but instead of it being over a couple weeks, guess what? It's over their whole lifetime. Right, generally not treatable. Um, you can either make the diagnosis with biopsy or with DNA testing. All right, but again, this is just going to be like, I mean, you'll figure this one out. This is kind of tough. This is what only for the boards. Congenital myopathies. These are things that you have to diagnose by muscle biopsy. Um, these are things that people are born with, but can present when they're late in life. So it's one of these oddball things. CK should be relatively normal, and then the muscle biopsy will show characteristic things that will allow you to make the diagnosis. Otherwise, you can't make the diagnosis of a congenital. All it is is that – so the muscle has, like, a certain characteristic, like nuclei inside. It's called central nuclear myopathy. If they have a space inside, it's called central core disease. So what I just say is whatever the muscle biopsy shows, if if the muscle has a funny face in it, you just call it funny face myopathy – so it's whatever the muscle looks like is whatever the congenital myopathy, but it can lead to respiratory failure. But it would be over over years. And then metabolic myopathies, glycogen storage disease. Acid, anybody ever hear, ever hear of acid maltase deficiency? reason it's important, why is, it, why is acid maltase deficiency? So it's just a glycogen storage disease. It's a metabolic myopathy that they're born with, can also present in adulthood, can, can eventually lead to respiratory failure. Again, why is, why is acid maltase deficiency important? Because there's a treatment for it. So there's this enzyme replacement. So all, of, all the drug, pe- drug companies wants you to know about this. But, but most of the other glycogen storage diseases aren't treatable. And then so really, so for, from a chronic standpoint, fasciculations, first thing you're going to think of is ALS. Areflexia, CIDP, but usually they're going to come in with a diagnosis, or spinal muscular atrophy, or muscular dystrophy, markedly elevated CK, muscular dystrophy. All right, so you guys did great. Give yourselves a hand. Hey, you guys survived. And so next year, somebody else can give this lecture. I mean, somebody whose attendance can give this. I and mean, Everybody will be a pro. So if you have any questions, I mean, I'll stick around. I know you guys got to go around a little bit, little bit late. But, again, any, any pressing neurologic questions, if you want to ask them with an open mic, ask them with a closed mic. Both of them, both of them are fine with me.
0: It's, uh, it seems like generally the things that you're describing, I guess the topic is weakness right. as well. So uh, the motor neurons are more... Is it true in general that the motor neurons are more susceptible to injury than sensory, or is that just
1: uh, uh, topic? So ever? the question is, so, yeah, so the issue is if somebody's got a neuropathy, like critical illness neuropathy is sensory and motor. But in this case, the sensory part isn't going to be debilitating. The motor part of it is going to be the thing that's keeping them in the ICU. So in general, sensory, the sensory component of the neuropathy will be the sensory nerves are actually more susceptible to damage. But they're going to be less of an issue here since we're specifically talking about weakness. But yeah, for most neuropathies, like diabetic neuropathy, we think of as a sensory neuropathy, maybe sensory motor. There are pure motor neuropathies. In this case, yes, um, the 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 sensory problems are just not as salient because the guy the person is just laying there and can't move. Yeah. Anything else? Any other questions? Yeah, Melissa. Boy, that's a good question. So, oh, so, so Melissa brought up um, – so she's – so, yeah, so West Nile virus. So, again, in that case, it's going to be more of a, like a encephalitis, right? So there's going to be some encephalopathy, but you're absolutely right. It's going to look just like kind of polio. So if you, if for folks that haven't seen it, so West Nile virus, you can get encephalitis. You'll get like a pleocytosis, so it'll be an inflammatory process. And then we think of it as actually motor neuron disease. The question is, is it really a motor neuron disease or is it really a severe polyradiculitis with secondary loss of the motor neurons. And it's like a matter of semantics. But you're absolutely right. That would be a good one that I probably should have kind of, that I really should have, should have put in there. So always think West Nile. But a lot of times, if it's on the differential of Guillain-Barre, you're going to do a spinal tap. With Guillain-Barre, there should be no cells. With West Nile, lots of cells. Again, then you're going to think of some sort of inflammatory process. But that's absolutely excellent. So thanks. I'll add that to the slides. Any other questions? Is there
0: yeah. any sort of physiologic basis that you can think of that why... Uh, lower-moderate-dose steroids are bad.
1: So so the question is, why, are, why is a moderate dose of prednisone worse for Guillain-Barré versus high versus none? So again, this is more like the, ant- the antithesis of the three little bears, right? Not too much, not too little, just right. Well, in this case, a medium dose, and again, this is sort of hand-waving, but like I said, this is true for a lot of the other demolinating disorders. So think of it in this case like a little bit of something is actually bad, like too little is actually bad. So if you can swamp the system, Okay. If you're not even instigating the system, no big deal. Think of it this way. You're temporarily suppressing the system. Kind of good. And then you're going to say, well, let's just go ahead and taper. And then you get a rebound. Bad. And that's what really kind of happens probably both with demyelinating disease centrally and demyelinating disease peripherally eventually, initially, you will get a good response, but you will then actually theoretically incur a long-term, like in other words, you'll almost see you'll temporarily suppress things, and then it comes back with a vengeance. And that's what happens with optic neuritis. You, in, you increase your risk of developing MS by using prednisone, and you will increase your risk of recurrence of Guillain-Barre and turning it into CIDP. With, um, with just like a moderate dose. So just think of it as more like a. I would think of more of like a partially repressed um, um, issue within a rebound. Is the way I would think of it.
0: And and in the absence of IVIG and plasma exchange, what if we're if we're left with minimal resources and um, and we have SoluMedrol, what dose? And for what duration would you
1: typically... So the question is, so if you had to use... So I think Siamedrol is, is, isn't... is I don't think Siamedrol is contraindicated. I don't usually use it, um, but it's not like the regular prednisone. So remember for... And again, I'm just talking off the top of my head. So for the other sort of like for MS, I mean, it's like three to five days. It's sort of like standard Siamedrol, one gram. You know, in kids, I think it's one mg per kg. Um, in... Uh, um, in uh, um, and so I would say that would probably be the same thing if I, if I had to with guillain But in general, you're right. I mean, here we would just do plasma exchange. But if you're out in the middle of the nowhere and you can't do anything else, then probably either you do nothing. Because you you've got to remember, none of these treatments – I would just probably argue for doing nothing. None of the treatments um, changed – I didn't talk about this – Change the long-term history. I mean, other than you're making the long-term history worse with prednisone – there's no treatment that's going to make the natural history better, uh, long-term natural history better, meaning that if, they're, if they have guillain they should get better on their own. What treatment does is makes them better faster, which is nothing to sneeze at if you can get them off the vent, say, two weeks earlier. But worst-case scenario is they're on the vent two weeks more, and but a year from now, they're good, they should be in this, if they survive, they should be in the same place, whether you treat them or not. As long as you don't give them something that's gonna make them worse. And that's where the that's where the prednisone comes in. So in this case, doing nothing is actually probably better than doing something that's actually bad. Yeah. Thanks
0: a lot. All right. Hey,
1: thanks folks.